in January 2020, I stepped into this pulpit and announced that we were starting a new sermon series in the Gospel of John. That was almost a year and a half ago. In a, a relatively short amount of time, our world looks differently. Who would have ever guessed when I opened up the first five verses in the Gospel of John, just a couple of months later, we would be watching the services online from home. We could have never guessed that there was going to be a, a worldwide pandemic. Most of us could not have guessed that there would be increased polarization and disunity in society. We could have never guessed that our lives would be so differently and would be wearing masks for so long. It's been a difficult time for many of us, but the Gospel of John speaks specifically to such a time like this. The primary verse or two, or the primary theme of John's Gospel is John chapter 20. Verses 30 through 31, which says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's a thesis statement of John's gospel. And John is saying, I wrote this gospel so that you would believe that Jesus is God. And by believing in him, you will have eternal life. And that changes everything. Does it mean that your problems will go away? Does it mean that you'll have good health and wealth? Does it mean that things will always be on your side? But believing that Jesus is God is not just a theological truth that's real, although it is. But it provides hope and comfort and joy now, even in the midst of hard times. Because those of us who do belong to Christ, those of us who are Christians, know that although things are sort of upside down now and we can't predict what will happen in the future, both for our country and ourselves, one day everything will be okay. Not now, but one day it will be. So that's, that's the theme of all of John's gospel. That's essentially what we've tried to hit in every sermon is that Jesus is God, believe in him, and now let that belief affect the way you live. And the appropriate response to the gospel of John, the appropriate response as we see in this passage when Jesus reinstates Peter to ministry is love for Jesus. That, that's our response. We must love Jesus in response. When we blow it big time, we tend to think that God might be done with us, that he resents us. If we have a past, we might have some shame or guilt because of that. Maybe if we've committed the same kinds of sins for too long, we think that maybe his patience might be running out 
on us and maybe there's no hope for usefulness to the kingdom of God in the future. But Peter committed one of the biggest sins in the history of humanity. He denied Christ three times. And yet what we see is even in the deepest possible example of wickedness in humanity, Jesus comes to Peter and brings grace and healing and commissions him to ministry. We must respond to this acceptance of Jesus despite our sin with love for him. We must love Jesus. But what does it mean to love Jesus? First, loving Jesus happens through confession. If you notice in the passage, after Jesus helps the disciples miraculously catch a bunch of fish, they eat it, they have a meal, Jesus grabs Peter and he has a private walk with him. He's like, let's go walk by the beach. Let's go walk by the lake. Throughout the four Gospels, you'll see that Peter is sort of a ringleader among the disciples. And Jesus particularly invests in him. And so he starts to have a conversation with them. And he says, Peter, the Apostle Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter hears this question three times. And he says... Of course, of course I love you. What do you mean, do, do I love you? You're God, you're omniscient. Omniscient means all-knowing. You know everything. I can't fool you even if I tried. Of course I love you. And Jesus says, do you love me more than these? It's not clear what more than these means. Probably more than these other disciples or maybe the fish or signaling Peter's life as a fisherman saying, do you love me more than your old career? So he asks Peter, do you, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And, and, and each time Jesus gives him a commission, he says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. He's not telling Peter to go become a vocational shepherd or become a farmer, although that, that would be a viable career none, nonetheless. Uh, the Bible uses metaphorical language to describe pastors as shepherds because pastors love, care for, teach the word of God, protect the flock, so on and so forth. It uses metaphorical language to talk about the Bible as spiritual food, something to be fed spiritually. And the Bible uses Christians, those who have believed in Jesus, trusted in Christ, to describe as sheep or lambs. Lambs are baby sheep. So when Jesus says, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, tend my lambs, he's saying, go become a pastor. I'm commissioning you to ministry to go be a leader in the church. And throughout the book of Acts, we see Peter preaching to 3,000 people. Throughout church history, we see this line of faithfulness. Peter even wrote two books of the Bible bearing his name. But, But notice that Jesus asked, do you love me? Three times, he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Why does Jesus ask three times? Well, if you can remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. Each confession points to each denial. Jesus is giving Peter an opportunity to make it up. Each confession of love points to each denial. And Jesus gladly accepts his confession. 
and gives them a job. He gives them a task. He says, now that I've reinstated you, I commission you. Go become a leader in the church. Peter blew it big time, and all of us do on a regular basis. And we need to know that there's grace, love, acceptance in Christ available. But we should also know that in response to God's grace, we should love him and serve him and obey him. They go together. When you yell at your children, when you neglect family for work, there's a particular sin you struggle with. We confess our sins to God. We quickly confess. We receive his grace. But from there, we seek to love other people. Our, the, the grace of God doesn't mean that we can therefore go however we want and live and say and do whatever we want. Paul addresses that in Romans. He says, what shall we say? Romans 6, then, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. If the Christian life was all love and grace and touchy-feeliness and God loves you, God accepts you, we would never feel like we needed God. There would no be, there'd be no reason to, to pay for sin. But if walking with God meant that it was my deeds, my works, my effort alone, it would be crushing because none of us could meet the standards of God. We all fall short of the glory of God through the things we say and do and our desires and so forth. And so such is the brilliance of God that he organizes the world that humans, that us, we need to come to him and believe in him to receive forgiveness of sins and grace. But out of that receiving love of Jesus, now we then go forth and obey him. Despite any sin you've committed, no matter what your past is like, through believing in Jesus that he died on the cross in your place and for your sins, you can receive forgiveness, you can receive adoption into his family, to the people of God, and you can have a right relationship with God and escape God's wrath. Look at Peter. He, he, he blows it big time. And Jesus comes to him, shows him his grace, and then gives him a job. He commissions him to do something else. Peter obeys Jesus in response to Christ's love for him. Part of loving Jesus means obeying him. We cannot say, I love Jesus, and then our lives are completely, entirely void of obedience to him. That profession is false. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 14, verse 15. He says this, If you love me, you will keep my commands. I read a conversation between a husband and wife couple who were thinking about visiting the Holy Land. And the husband said, Wouldn't it be great if we went to Mount Sinai and read the Ten Commandments from the top of our lungs there in the Holy Land? And the wife said, it would be better if we stayed at home and kept them. Our obedience will not be perfect. We still continue to stumble and fall. But nevertheless, there should be a demonstrable evidence of I love Christ, I love his word, I'm living for him, I want to obey the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit and through grace-driven effort. One pastor tells us that God invites us to come as we are, but not to stay as we are. By the grace of God, he wants you to grow. He has open arms 
Come, receive. Come, experience this forgiveness. Now go and obey. So we see that loving Jesus is confession. Using our words, talk can be cheap, that's true. But words are not irrelevant. We, we, we should confess our love for Jesus, both in private and public. Love for Jesus is displayed through obedience as well. Uh, we, we, should, we should take some time uh, quickly to mention what the word for love means here in this passage because it's mentioned seven times. Um, if you've ever heard a sermon on this passage or if you've ever read anything from this text, you'll notice that a lot of those who speak on this passage spend a lot of time talking about the word love. So the word love in English is repeated seven times. Uh, in, in Greek, there's four words for love. Uh, eros, which comes from the word erotic, which means sexual love, sexual pleasure. That's not found anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, the other one is storage, which is, means like familial love, like a love for a mother and her daughter or a grandpa and his son, familial love. That's not explicitly found anywhere in the New Testament either. But all of the press and all of the debate about love and what does Jesus really mean, what does Peter really mean, it, it comes down to the two other words that are very common in New Testament, which is uh, philia, uh, if you've, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. So that gives it away. It's um, like a friendship kind of love, like I love you as a friend, that kind of thing. Um, you think of David and Jonathan in the Bible. So a friendship kind of love, and then the word agape, You've probably heard that. There's all kinds of ministries called agape ministries, agape. Uh, that, uh, people say, is that the most highest form of love, it, it shows total commitment, that kind of thing. Uh, and the reason why this sort of understanding of what the word love means is because it's mentioned seven times, and every time it's mentioned, Peter uses a different word than, than Jesus. Or to say that uh, Jesus uses the word agape twice, but Peter doesn't. So what people say is that Jesus and Peter have this conversation. Jesus says, do you love me? Agape. Total commitment. You're all in. And Peter says, I love you. Friendship love. And Jesus says, do you love me? The agape love. And Peter says, I love you. The friendship love. So what people say is, Peter's saying, actually, I love you, but not like with the agape love. I love you like a friend. So the reason why Jesus asked over and over was to get him to say the agape word. Um, a lot of people say that in his commentary on John, D.A. Carson says this will not do. Uh, to attach significant meaning to a word like this is overdoing it. If you look at throughout the New Testament, both words are used interchangeably for love for God, the phileo word, or Love for God, the agape word, for friends, for enemies. They're used interchangeably. So, so that's a stylistic thing here. Uh, John is just doing that. That's his writing style. Uh, sometimes people want to take these kind of things and overcomplicate them to make it seem like there's something more going on than what's going on. There, there's no significant differences between those two words. But the point is we need to love Jesus in response. We need to love God, not nitpick what little words mean to let ourselves off the hook. And so Jesus says, and the Old Testament teaches, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. John Piper says, loving God will include obeying all his commands. It will include believing all his word. 
It will include thanking him for all his gifts. But all that is overflow. The essence of loving God is admiring and enjoying all he is. And it is this enjoyment of God that makes all of our other responses truly glorifying to him. Throughout the New Testament, love for God is shown by how you love people. Show me how you love people, and I will tell you about your love for God. We love God by loving people. It's really easy to love people who love us. It's really easy to love people who don't speak into our lives or people who look like us. But the real test of love is, how do you treat people who vote different than you on politics? How do you treat people who see things differently with respect to social justice and things going on in society? How do you treat uh, difficult in-laws and people in your family that just grind your gears? How do you and I treat our enemies? The answers to those questions will reveal how much love for God we have in our hearts. It was Jesus on the cross when his enemies flogged him and threw him on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We love Jesus by loving other people, and our greatest measure of love is how we treat our enemies. So our love for Jesus must be shown by confession, it must be shown by obedience, it must be shown by loving people, but in order to do this, there must be a sense of focus. Notice the, the conversation with Peter and Jesus continues. Jesus says to Peter, truly, Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's telling Peter, one day, you're going to be a martyr. He's telling Peter how he's going to die. Peter says, Lord, you know it all. And then Jesus says, you're right, I do. Let me tell you how you're going to die. Uh, the, the expression, stretch out your hands, in the ancient Near East would have been easily understood to, to, to know. Uh, he's talking about crucifixion. He's talking about carrying your cross on your back to the place of Golgotha where criminals were crucified. And if you read church history, there are some accounts that show that Peter was crucified, not upside up like Jesus, but upside down because he says, I am not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. Usually if we ask people, hey, do you want to know how you're going to die one day? Would you want to find out if you could? Most people say no. Peter found out and he wasn't even asking. Uh, remarkably, he, he lived with this hanging over his head that he would die like this for three decades. Talk about emotional maturity and emotional intelligence to be able to be faithful to God 
with something hanging over your head for three decades, serving God faithfully, despite the fact that he blew it, despite the fact that if you, if you read the four Gospels, Peter seems to be saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. And I've heard a lot of people over the years try to beat up Peter, make fun of him, but if we look closely, we can see ourselves in the narrative that we are like Peter in many ways. And look, look at the grace and love for, for Peter that Jesus has, despite the fact that he denied him and constantly for three years said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing, was overzealous. Jesus still has love and grace for him. And then he says, now go, serve for three years. I'm going to give you this knowledge. Three years faithfully serving God. Peter hears this, and then he responds. He's, he asks about the apostle John. He says, Lord, what about this man? Like, you just told me what you have for my life. Go become a leader in the church. This is how I'm going to die. This is the cost of discipleship for me. What about John? What about him? Let me compare my life to somebody else. And Jesus responds in verse 22. He says, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. In effect, Jesus is saying, Peter, it's none of your business. Why are you worried about John? Why are you worried about his calling, his life, his plans? I'm not going to tell you that. I don't, I don't, I'm not under obligation to tell you anything you ask. I have my plans for John. I have the way he's going to die. I have his life mapped out for him. That I want him to follow me. You follow me. We, we like to do the same thing as well sometimes when we compare our lives to others or our calling to other people. We look at that guy in the church who has so much Bible knowledge. He knows the Bible front and back. And we say, I could never know Scripture that well. I could never memorize and meditate that much Scripture like him. Or we see a gal who's, she's got the gift of administration and hospitality and leadership. Her house is always super clean and it looks like it's the front cover of a magazine. And everything is perfect, and you come, and you go inside, and everything is just seems to be done with execution and excellence. And you're like, I'm just, I'm just not that put together. Or we consider our past, and we feel like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I've trusted in Christ. But I have a past. I blew it. I messed up too big. Those people, they, they, were, they grew up in the church. They have Christian parents. They, they don't struggle with what I'm doing. I'm just glad to be forgiven and saved. Used by God? Usefulness in the church? Usefulness in the kingdom? But actually, you are exactly the kind of person that God loves to use. Because by using you, he shows who really deserves to get the glory. Throughout the theme of scriptures, God uses the weak to lead the strong. So, so we might feel un, unlovable. We feel like I, I blew it big time. There's no way that I could, in response to this grace, go and love Jesus. But Jesus says, if you are a Christian, if you've believed in him, I've forgiven you, I love you, I'm for you. Come to me to deal with this ongoing shame and guilt. Come to me to experience my love and grace again. But after you do, use your spiritual gifts 
energy, opportunities to serve other people, to love other people, to being good stewards of what God has blessed us with is another sign that we're actively trying to use what God has blessed us with to love and bless others. Jesus says, what are you you worried about everyone else's calling? You follow me. Or if you live with someone who's not a believer, or you raised kids who aren't walking with the Lord, or there's people you've been praying with to come to faith in Jesus, yes, you pray. Yes, you be a good example. Yes, you share the gospel. But you're not the Savior. I'm not the Savior. Only Jesus is the Savior. There's only so much we can do. We cannot let everyone else's life mess with your life and mess with you being faithful to what God has called you to do. So we cannot worry what everyone else is saying and doing. We must follow Jesus. We must love him in return. So let's not compare our lives to others, but instead let's seek God to see what he has for us and let us follow him. This seems like a lot as we end the Gospel of John 21 chapters. But John says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. (laughs) Jesus is so amazing and so glorious that if everything was written about him, said, and everything he did, there wouldn't be enough room in this universe for the books. The Gospel of John is 21 chapters, but it could have been much, much longer. And the Apostle John dare not end with him. He, he mentions in 20, verse 24 that gives, it, gives the clue that he wrote the Gospel of John. But verse 25, he keeps the spotlight on Jesus. The Gospel of John opens with the spotlight on Jesus, and it ends with the spotlight on Jesus. So much so that F.F. Bruce in his commentary on John says, No study of this gospel could promote the purpose for which it was composed if it did not enable the reader more clearly to see that divine glory in the crucified and risen Jesus and to hail him like Thomas as my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. The whole point of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is God and we must believe in him. And a proper response to believing in him is to love him. Let's pray. Lord, you are the God who rules and reigns over all. Lord, we love you and we need you. Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to love you. Lord, help us to confess our love for you. Help us to obey you through the power of the Holy Spirit and through grace-driven effort. And help us, Lord, not to compare our lives to everyone we see on social media or to compare our lives to other people. Lord, we are not the Savior. Only you can save. You have your plans for each person, and we don't always understand what it is or what you're doing, but we confess, Lord, we trust you. Give us the grace to love and serve you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.